Sabrina was canceled. My relationship ended with the person I thought I was going to marry and my dad got cancer. And all three of those things happened over the course of a very short period of time. If you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed, or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you. Because it'll teach you what my dad always taught me, that failure is just opportunity in disguise. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Welcome back to 10,000 Knows. Today, I have Elisa Donovan with me. She has been a part of the pop culture zeitgeist for over two decades, starting with her work in the film Clueless, followed that up with Beverly Hills 90210, the TV adaptation of Clueless, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, the list goes on. And while she's done that and so much more as an actor, along the way, she realized that her real passion has lied in finding her voice through writing, including her soon-to-be-released book, Wake Me When You Leave. Uh, We get into a lot here, including why she serves on the board of the Collaborative for the Alliance for Eating Disorders, listening to your own voice in terms of pursuing passion projects, and the overall concept that we talk about a lot on this show of being comfortable with discomfort and realizing that struggle is not something we need to avoid, but actually it's the path to getting closer to our humanity. Now, if you like this conversation and conversations like this, like the ones that we have had here on this show, and you want to apply something like this to your own life, check out the 10,000 Nose Insiders. It is a community of trailblazers, artists, creatives. Uh, Don't have to be an artist, but most of the members are. And It's a place for you to get these kinds of conversations, but apply them to your own life and get a group of like-minded people that are going through a similar path as you. Uh, You're not in a career that's A to B, that has some conventional uh, path that you can travel to success. If you are in that situation, you definitely want to check this out. We do live video calls every week. If you miss them, there's a replay for you. We have people from the UK to Canada to the US. People are collaborating from LA to the UK on on films, on scripts. It's, uh, It's pretty cool. And it's an opportunity for you to take what you've heard on this show, things like the conversation you're going to hear today, and putting it into action for yourself. Uh, every month, I bring in a VIP guest. A lot of times, it is a uh, a past guest from 10,000 Knows with some area of expertise, and we talk on that topic. Uh, check it out. If you want, there's a link in the show notes, and you can also go to 10,000knows.com and look for the insiders community there. But for now, here we go, Elisa Donovan. How early was acting something that you were into? I remember doing a play in the first grade and uh, it was called Westward Ho, Ho, Ho. And I played, uh, I played Ralph Rotten, who was the bad guy. So I played a man and um, I was so obsessed with the whole thing. Like I came home and I said to my mom, we've got to get this 
um, I need like a black top hat, you know, a 10 gallon hat. And she was like, what? Like how you're seven, how are we going to find these things? And I was very particular about it. And I needed a black button down. And she's like, again, seven-year-old girls, they don't make black button downs for you. <laughs> so I, we went to get RIT. Remember RIT dye? I don't know if this still exists. Like you can dye fabric, get it at like, you know, Walgreens. And uh, so we get this dye, we dye the shirt. It comes out gray. I'm devastated because it's not black. And she's like, I can't, there's no we can't get it black. Like you just are going to have to be okay with this. And I was like, but it's what I need. And I had a mustache, this whole thing. So when <laughs> I remember being on stage and being completely like just inhabiting this person. And I was so excited about it. And my mom would describe it like, yeah, there were, you know, all these other kids were kind of like walking around, bumping into each other. And you were completely invested in this character. Like I've got to do this. And I didn't understand at the time that, you know, you could make a career out of it. I didn't know that people had, you know, got paid to do this. I was not even on my radar. I, you know, I was a very traditional family that no one was in the arts at all. Yeah. And, and I saw in your bio, I didn't know this about you, that you were a competitive equestrian. Was that, that yeah. you know, was that like in elementary school or was so, that later? Well, yeah. So I, I started riding at that time, probably when I was maybe five. And my brother started competing first. So let me think. No, yeah, actually, we started doing equitation, which is a certain kind of English writing, probably when I was super little. Yeah, when I was seven or eight. And then we got into dressage and eventing. I did that all the way through uh, junior high. And junior and high was the one. And was that the main, like, did you play other sports as well? Or did that pretty much take you like year round? I also was a competitive gymnast. I was very competitive, which I find ironic because I'm thinking about it now. And I'm always saying to my husband, it's his fault that our daughter is so competitive. She is like fierce. And I'm always like, I'm so laid back. I don't, I don't care what happens. But as I'm talking about this, I'm realizing I used to be very competitive. Uh, but that gymnastics was from uh, probably like six, I want to say, until you know, until I started to grow. And then it was like, oh, I'm not very good at this anymore. Suddenly, which <laughs> so maybe was to like, like 11, 10, oh, 11, 11, okay. maybe. Yeah. I remember trying to like do it in junior high, trying to, um, uh, you know, go out on the, for the school team. And I just went, this is not, this is not for me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and did you, and <laughs> when did you segue into, like had it, so between that play that you did in I think you said third grade and first then grade, when you yeah. or first grade and then when yeah. you said when, when you started to do it um, more seriously in high school I happened to know that you guys had a pretty inspiring yes. teacher I know Edie Falco oh. went to your high school she's a yep. little bit older mm -hmm. uh, Chris Messina which is how we originally yep. know each other exactly. yourself uh, Bob Bagnell like a lot of people that That's have gone right. on and had had careers. So I, I always thought, man, you must have had an amazing teacher, which is kind of what the word on the street is. Yes. So tell me about that transition from, you know, doing the play in first grade. Uh, did you, was, was acting kind of even on your radar or did you just like randomly do it from here, you know, every now and then I or what? Yeah. I remember that certainly in, in junior high. And at that time, our junior high was uh, seventh, eighth, ninth grade. 
So definitely in seventh grade, whatever the play was, I went, oh, I want to, I want to do this. Like I can, I can be a part of this. And then I auditioned for the plays and I, you know, they were all musicals and I felt like, I don't, I don't want to sing a dance. I want to act like I was very specific. So I started taking classes outside of school and, um, what was the name of the studio? I can't remember now, uh, with another, uh, classmate of mine. And, you know, he would, the two of us would go, our parents would drive us and he would like, we would also just want to smoke outside. You know, we'd like smoke outside the class and go Wait, in. We were like you know, 50 you? year old people in eighth grade, you know, eighth and, grade, we were oh like, <laughs> and they'd be doing like a Sunday in the park with George, you know? And so uh, we, he and I, there were a couple of performances that, you know, that the, the class culminated in a show and I remember that I was very conscious of my nerves and I went, this is like something that I have to work on, but this is like what I'm doing with my life. So in eighth grade, I was like, I'm done. This is what I'm doing, you know, which was not met with a lot of joy uh, by my parents. (laughs) My dad, who is, you know, an executive at AT AT&T is like, I don't understand the language you're speaking. So, uh, but I kept taking classes and the same thing happened in high school. It was, our musical theater teacher, bless her, she was lovely, um, but very, you know, just how you would imagine a high school theater teacher to be. And all the plays were, you know, involved fairies or like something. I was like, this is not my speed. A lot of jazz then, hands. A lot of jazz hands. <laughs> and then I discovered John, Mr. Gavrilux class. And the reason that I, he was doing a play that was, I, again, not, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a, it wasn't a part of his class, but it would culminate in a show outside of school. And at the time, I guess it was in 10th grade, it would be, um, my uncle had recently passed away from AIDS and it was very early on in the AIDS epidemic. They had just stopped calling it gay cancer. And, um, it was my mom's brother. And I watched that whole process, you know, we'd go to the hospital. He was in, um, I mean, they weren't even, they had him in some hospital, like all the way up in the Bronx, which was not near where he lived. And they would like leave the food outside of his door because people were afraid, you know, they, they didn't know how you could get it at the time. It was, it it was a horrible, horrible, um, experience. And Mr. Gavrilek was doing a, wanted to do a play about AIDS an improvisational play. So I, I remember the nerve, as I said, the nerves have like been a, a, a recurring thing. And the reason I wasn't nervous is because I felt like, oh, this is something I'm supposed to do. Like I have a purpose with this, you know, this, this matters. I wanted to in some way be able to equate what I was feeling, I think, and, and speak to the collective in some way. And so I didn't know him. I just signed up. And auditioned and I, he had these very, you know, um, unusual auditions. It wasn't like, here's a script and do he would just, you know, they were improvisational. Sometimes he would put on music. And I remember he put on the doors. I walked up on the stage and I had to introduce yourself. And then he just put on the doors and I was like, all right. And I just started like dancing <laughs> and, and then he stopped it. And then he put someone else on stage with me and said, you know, give us some improv. And I went, this is the jam, right? Like, this is what I'm interested in doing. And he became my, that play was, 
so powerful. It actually, you know, the school board got involved. They didn't want us doing a play. They thought it was too risque. They didn't want us talking about sex. You know, letters had to go home so that parents could see it. I mean, it was not an explicit play at all, but it just shows you how, um, you know, it was a fairly conservative environment, but he ignited my, he's like my, one of my mentors for sure. Yeah. I know he did the same for Chris and, you know, I've just heard the story. I mean, I thought I, I heard, did you do something like some live art where you were? Yeah. Yeah. What was that? Yeah. 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 So <laughs> then the, so, so we did the play safe, which then actually they financed a documentary. Oh, sorry. A, um, uh, I don't know. We did a film version of it for some reason. Um, so then the following year, uh, Gav, John, I call him John. It's so super weird to call him John because, you know, I always think that as Mr. Gower, like, uh, yeah. he, he and I, he said, let's, let's write something together. Like you and I, let's, let's do something. So we wrote this, co-wrote this piece together where we created these, it was a combination of art installations and um, improvisational theater with music. And I mean, it was pretty progressive for that, for high school. <laughs> and, uh, and the name of the theater was the little theater because it was a little theater in the school. You know, we didn't do these plays on the main stage. Um, and so it was this really magical space, right? The, the, it was an angled floor, so you sat on the floor when you watched the play. So it inherently had this kind of grounded, intimate nature. And the stage was only raised a little bit. And uh, that piece, which, what is the name? Oh my gosh, can't believe I can't remember the name of it. That I think is what Chris, like when Chris saw that, he was like, I got to know this girl. Like, yeah. I, I got to know these people. I got to know what's going on here. You yeah, know? it was, was he it something like, to do with hunger? Were you in a cage or something yes. in the middle of the, like oh, the schoolyard or something? That was something else. That was oh, something else. It was like a live <laughs> art was, installation. Yeah, he talks about that. And he's like, yeah, I mean, he, he, cause his for, point was that you guys really were invested in these things. And it was, it was more than theater. It was like, a, you know, a real, yes. like you said, it was like, there was a purpose to it all. Yes. Yeah, so that I think maybe what he's talking about was this was um, about the, the the political prisoners in South Africa. <laughs> so I for two was it for two days? And this was my idea, too. We put this uh, built a cage and I sat in the cage in the commons. So it was a big public high school, right? Like fifteen hundred kids. And um, we I sat had someone brought me in like with my arms behind my back, like chained together and, you know, dirt on my face and dirty clothes. And I, they walked me into the cage, locked the door and, you know, walked away. And I just sat there. So nobody knew why this was happening. Right. They just, you just walk through the commons and you're like, which, what's the, what's the weird girl doing in the cage? You know? <laughs> and so I didn't say anything. I just sat there like with this very somber as you would. I mean, I was playing that role and people would come up and like poke at me, try to get me to laugh, do. And then eventually over the whole day, like some, then, then um, my guard would come and let me like go to the restroom, you know, would like take me out, walk me to the bathroom, walk me back in. And then by the end of the day, this interesting thing happened. Some people were really like concerned, you know, like what's going on here? 
And then other people just completely shut off to it. And it was this interesting social experiment of that's kind of what we do, right? As a person, you either become invested in something and it affects you or you say, ultimately, I I, I can't get involved. I don't, I'm just not going to pay attention, you know? And uh, it was a really interesting, it was a great school, man. We went to a great high school. That was a special place. Yeah. For and sure. it was, but it was also like, and you know, it was like a Long Island high school on the, on the North shore. And I'm sure there were like, you know, guys oh, that were going like, yes. what, what is going on oh, here? And there's making fun one of it guy, and- one guy who shall remain nameless because in later years, I feel like we've, we've had like a come to Jesus. He would, he would, it, he like made it his life's duty to, try to crush me, you know, to like make fun of me to do. Cause also I was a nonconformist, you know, uh, new wave punk kid. So I had like half a shaved head and my, would like tease my hair and had, you know, black stockings. And, but then I also would, so he was just like, he, he could not wait to just take me apart every day. And then when I started auditioning, taking the train into the city to um, audition for like commercials and things like that, I would have to get dressed, you know, like a normal person. So I would go in like Clark Clark Kent into the bathroom and come out looking like this preppy girl. And I remember one day he saw me walk out and he did this double take like, oh, who's that girl? And I looked at him and I was like, (laughs) yep. It's me. And he almost like, he was so mortified that he was like, Oh, who's the cute girl. And I right. went, mm-hmm. yep. It's, it's all just dressing. It's all window dressing. <laughs> I love to hear that because, you know, having we both have kids having kids, yeah. you know, kids that are in uh, middle school, high school, just not, there's so much about, you know, it being a popularity contest and then, you know, trying to tell your kids, be your own person. And you really did that. And you kind of suffer for it in one way. And in another way, it's like, look what you then went on to do as a result of it. And where my mind is going while you're telling this is thinking, you know, you, this is jumping ahead in time. And I kind of want to hear how that connected to this next moment I'm bringing up, but clueless, you do this movie. That's a huge hit. And, you know, it would be easy to go to the theater and be like, Oh, look at her. She got lucky. She's in this big movie, but you hear these stories and you realize the, the, you know, the years and years before that, even though you were really Mm -hmm. young when you got that role, I think I'm guessing you were in your early twenties. Yes. I think I was 21. Maybe yeah, so 20, you would th- yeah, so you would think yeah. like, oh, look how lucky she is. She's 21 and she's in this huge movie. And right. sure, yeah, but all this. The, so what, yes, what was, like, you know, it's like you were already <laughs> doing this in high school and most people weren't thinking about those things. Yes. You were locking yourself in a cage. So what, <laughs> you know, how, what, what's, what happened between Northport and Clueless? What, where right. were you? Were you East Coast, West Coast? What'd you do? Did you go to school for it? What'd you do? So I graduated from high school. Uh, well, pro- you know, that, that year when everyone's applying to colleges and I made the announcement that my plan was to take a year off and go to the Michael Chekhov acting studio in in the city. 
you know, my dad, it's so funny. I think of my dad and I think of him like either with this like great grin because he had this phenomenal laugh and smile or just like, oh, like shaking his head at me because I really just exhausted him. Um, and uh, so I had this, you know, whole plan. I said, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I have to, you know, going to college is one thing, but that isn't going to help my my acting career. And uh, you know, long story short, he was not happy about it, but he said, okay, you can do this for a period of time. And then you're going to go to college. And I said, okay, so I moved into the city, you know, he, they paid for my apartment. I went to the acting studio full time every day, five hours a day. I was auditioning. I was working in a restaurant, never got a job. See, this is, this is the thing, like in all of those years for three years, I guess it would be. Uh, no jobs. You know, I, I had one, I think I booked one regional commercial where I had to eat a hamburger and I was a strict vegetarian at the time. And I was like, <laughs> this is not a good start. But I, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so, and then I had written this, co-written this other play um, that we did at the La Mama Annex Theater, which is this well-known experimental theater in the yeah. East Village of New York City. And that's how I got my equity card is by doing that play. And the play did not get good reviews, but I personally had good reviews, positive reviews. So I Xeroxed the the copy, you know, from from the Daily News and did the New York Times and the I think the Times did too, which think about like, wow. Uh, and I, 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 I've zero, you know, Xerox to those and put in my headshot and sent it to a bunch of agencies and a couple of them came and that's how I got my first agent. And, um, so I started working with them again, no jobs. And, uh, I got very close to, they were doing a, the Broadway production of Suburbia, the Eric Bogosian play. Yep. I remember. Um, I, this is, this is one of these moments that I feel like it's, we all have them in various ways. And it's like, it's either it's, 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 you keep going or your whole life changes and you say, I can't do this anymore. And I, um, God, I remember the apartment I was living in, I remember the subway ride, all that I had gone in so many times for this role you know, from the very beginning, only seeing like the assistant casting director and seeing the casting director and seeing casting and one of the producers, then the director, and the, you know, like I had gone in many, many times and I went, this is, this is my role. Like this is mine. And they pretty much made me feel that way. And Robert Falls was directing it. And the final callbacks were at Lincoln center. And I was like, Whoa, my life is happening, you know? And I walked out of there and I was like, I, it's mine. Like I, I nailed it. I get on the subway, I get home. My agent calls me and says, you didn't get it. And I, I, I it was like, I couldn't, I couldn't believe her. I was like, what do you mean? And she just said, you know, they're not. And then she said, you know, they might, they might offer you the understudy if you want it. And, but, but then I don't, I don't, I don't think they ever did because I feel like I would have said yes, but I don't, I don't remember that. But I was so Devastated. They wind up wind up giving it to Martha Plimpton, who wasn't even at the audition. So I think they were trying. And she, years later, I met her once at this event, and I was like, "Oh, you're nice. All right, I feel okay about this." Yeah, you yeah. But I was so 
devastated. Like I was weeping. I was dramatically walking around my neighborhood. Like I am lost and broken. I can't do this. I'm so sad. I call my mom and she's like, Oh, why don't you just come home? You know, just come home. And in that moment I went fucking come home. What are you talking about? Like, that's not going to fix this. This isn't going to help me get my, and while that was lovely that she was saying that I realized Oh no, no, no. I am, I am, I am recommitted to this whole thing. And then shortly after that, I went to LA for a couple of weeks to work with my agency. Also didn't get a job, but tested for a bunch of things, went back to New York and I was supposed to do a soap opera and a play, like a small role in a soap opera. It would have been a recurring, but it would have been money. And I just went, no, I'm not doing it. I'm, I'm going to move to LA. And I did. And oh, I, for, I, I forgot to mention over that time. Also, I did go to college. So oh. I enrolled in um, the middle of the. Oh, this is an important part. <laughs> My dad <laughs> saying like six months into me um, uh, studying at the Chekhov studio, we had like a sit down. My dad and I and he said, OK, so you've been doing this for six months you're not famous and you don't have a job. So are you going to get serious and go to school? And I was infuriated and I said, I want to go to college and I will go to college relief. Right. And I said to become an educated actress. And he was like, <laughs> Oh, someone kill me now. And uh, so I did, I, 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 it took me longer because I didn't go full time um to eugene lang college at the new school uh, amazing also very progressive outside of the box kind of um school so i did I, I did do that um but then so then i moved to la flash forward to to the um moving to la and then within two weeks i got a job on the show blossom with maya Bialik and joey lawrence for one episode and they really liked me. So they wrote me into more episodes. And then at the same time, I got um, clueless. So everything, you know, people say, oh, it happened so quickly. You've only been here for two weeks. And I it's like, e yes and no. You know, I have all this training and all this commitment, you know. And when you come from New York, when you first get to L.A., it feels like this is amazing. This is luxurious. Like I can drive in a car. Yeah. And get to my appointment. I don't have to be up against like 10,000 people sweating on me on the subway and like trying to find my way. Like, oh, it's like, you know, this very <laughs> nice music, temperature controlled. I felt like this is amazing. I prep on my way. I'm like meditatively prepping on my drive, you know? So I think it's also like, yeah, I had, I was at an advantage in that way where I really felt like I could take in all the positive things about LA coming from New York at that time. Yeah. And that's the, that's kind of the point of the show is that you look at anybody, any field and you, when you scratch the surface, something that looks so glamorous or looks so easy, when you start to connect the dots, you realize, uh, in 99.99% of the cases, yeah, there was 
it didn't just happen. It didn't just happen. Either either they put in the work or they suffered in some way. Like there's there's always (laughs) a story of some sort that it's like, yeah, it wasn't that easy as you may think it is. So that's because oftentimes people all all, you know sometimes those are the you know the, the general press likes to tell these like lovely stories about you know and 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 characterize everything as so, you know, shiny and beautiful. And it's just, that's just not life at all in any, you know, regard. Yeah. And I feel like it's interesting. I think maybe we're kind of, um, uh, kind of detoured and are getting into a a lane where we're going to start to embrace all the kind of underbelly of things and, and the messy and the ugly and, I hope that that's where we're where we're going, as opposed to exploiting it, because I think we've kind of come through that phase of it. You know, there was a phase where, you know, paparazzi and journalists and anybody they just wanted to, you know, raise you up to knock you down. Yeah. And I'm hoping like we're gonna gonna marry those things in the yeah. next phase of wherever we go as a culture. Well, you know, I'm thinking maybe somewhere to go with you in this conversation is just, you do that. So you kind of, you know, you pay your dues, you, you do this movie. Uh, I don't know if you had any idea that it was going to be the hit that it was, but it became a gigantic hit. I I remember it, you know, I think I saw that in the theater. I don't remember where I was, but I saw, it was like, everybody saw that movie. Um, it was really like a zeitgeist kind of thing. Um, Talk to me a little bit about like when your life went from private to, I would think much more public and I'm sure it had advantages professionally. I'm sure it was a little weird personally. Uh, Can you go there a little? Yeah. I, uh, I mean, it's funny because I, I did clueless and then 90210 at essentially the same time. Like, I think 90210, they had almost hired me for the year before. And and I didn't get the job. <clears throat> um, Tiffany Thiessen did it. It was she and I going for this, the, a role on that show. And then I did Clueless. And then I think they went, oh, maybe we should have her on the show. So <laughs> I was doing these two very kind of pop culture um, phenomenons at the same time. So I went from basic obscurity to being on television and in a film that everybody was watching. And uh, I, I, I remember at the, the Beverly Center, I don't know if it even still exists, the Beverly Center, but, and they had uh, movie theaters on the top uh, uh, yeah. level. And I was with my friend Jennifer, who was the only person I knew when I moved to LA, I moved in with Jennifer. She was a playwright that I had worked with in New York and a friend. She's the only person I knew when I moved there. And we were uh, still living together when the film came out and she and I were going to the movies and we were going up the escalator and all these young kids, like, like, you know, teenagers or my age, I suppose they seem so young to me now, but I guess they were the same age as I was or teenagers. And, uh, and they were all like hovering and whispering and pointing and going. And I was like, oh, there's got to be somebody on the escalator, like somebody famous. And so we're looking around and we're like, who is it? Like, who could it be? And we get to the top and they all are suddenly swarming me and pointing at me. And I went, what is happening? Like, what is happening right now? 
and it, this, it, it was a surreal experience because I, I, I instantaneously felt like, oh, this is so exciting. And then I also went, oh, this is very off-putting because they started to talk about me in the third person. Like they, we were, they were, you know, within uh, two feet of me and they were like, oh, look, look, she's nervous. Oh, look, she's so cute. Oh, look, she's, you know, taller or shorter than I thought, you know, like it was, it was this, this break in the synapse that I think people have with people on television or in films, you know, where it's like, they actually don't realize that we're people. You know, so... like, how did she wind up in the Beverly Center? You know, <laughs> like, well, I got in my car and then I got on the escalator. You know, uh... it was very weird. It's a weird, it does weird things to your, to your uh, psyche. So I think you have to like really be uh, grounded for it. I always say like, if you don't know who you are before you have success, like you got to be really careful. Mm. You really do. Because I think it can be very dangerous and in many ways. Yeah. And did you, did you feel like you, um, handled that in a way that you like, like, are you happy when you look back and and look at how you handled it? Did you kind of walk that line between, you know, it, it, it certainly your, your career was propelled and it seems, I mean, you're extremely grounded. So it's not like it got, away from you, but I mean, were there any instances where you felt like you lost yourself there? I, I, as you're saying that I'm, I'm remembering this one time with, and my boyfriend at the time was traveling with me and we were going to, I was going to do press for something. And I, I don't remember where would we, it was like network announcements. I don't remember what it was, but, uh, we were uh, checking in and, you know, it's like where the network gets your flight and they take care of everything. And, and they had put me now again, I'm traveling first class, everything is being taken care of for me. And they had booked me in the, the last row in first class. So it went, and I went, I was like, I, I don't want to sit. Like I already said, I don't want, and I had this moment where I was like, I don't like sitting there because blah, 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 blah. And my boyfriend at the time looked at me, he was like, are you fucking kidding me right now? Like, what are you? And I, and I was like, Oh, I had this whole, like, Ooh, like every, it went all the way through my body. And I was like, Oh, that sounded crazy. What I just said sounded crazy. And he was like, it, 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 yes, it did. You know, and good for him. Like, good for him. Like, for, right, for, everything's fine. But, <laughs> but you know what? Good for him for calling you out. I mean, because that's totally. what you need. You need people around you because it, it it is easy to do yeah, that. And all he of a sudden wasn't you're like, like Who yeah, am I? why is she in, you know, 3A instead of 1A? Yeah. You know, like he didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, uh, you're crazy. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, I, I'm I'm thinking um, I would, I, I love the fact that you got your first agent because- well, because of a review, but it was a review on something that you helped write and you brought yeah. into the world. So to me, that that's even more credit to you. It's not like you just landed in this thing that got you there. It's you created right. it. And I know that you talked to us a little bit about In Gale We Trust. I never saw that, oh, full disclosure, but talk, tell me about so that. Much. Where was that in the, well, first of all, tell everybody your role in that, like how you helped bring it about. And then also where was that in relation to the whole 
clueless 90210 period? Was it way later? Right. Was it right after? So, when was it? Uh, in Gale We Trust was after Sabrina. So I think Sabrina, yeah, I think it was right after Sabrina. Um, and was, was Sabrina uh, right after 90210? Like, so was, when we, I did 90210 and then we did the series of Clueless for three years. Also, many people did not watch that, although we had a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> and, then, um, and then after that, I did Sabrina for three years. That's Sabrina, the Teenage Witch. The Teenage Witch, okay. yes. I was not the demographic of that show, you I don't think. were not the demographic <laughs> for that show. And um, then, so then Gail was after that. And it was for NBC.com before they understood how to make web series financially fruitful for them. So it was this big budgeted uh, streaming series where NBC partnered with an advertiser, in this case, an insurance agency. And they, so I guess they probably financed it. I don't know exactly, but, um, and we would do these short films about, Gail, who was this local in uh, Maple Ridge, I want to say, or something like this fictional town in the Midwest. And she was everyone's insurance agent, but she also was like their therapist. So they were these, um, you know, vignettes, maybe three to five minutes um, of her with each of her clients. And I, it was created by Brent Forrester, who is one of the writer producers from The Office. And he, that experience from start to finish was so uh, such a joy to me. One, because the character was hilarious and I like based her on my mom. And uh, but also Brett was like Brett was like um, in the room, you know, when you go into uh, audition, it's the most absurd and, you know, it's just it's just horrible most of the time. And he um, he was so present and so kind, like he sat there and he was like, Oh, this is wonderful. You're wonderful. Okay. Let's do. And he was so engaged and so, um, you know, he just cared about what, what you were doing in a way that I was like, I don't care if I ever get this job. Like this was a thoroughly enjoyable experience, you know? And then when I got the job, I said that to him and he's like, well, I just think that, you know, human decency dictates that you, that you give people your time when you're asking them to. And I was like, I, I know, like what a concept, right? Um, but so the whole series, we did that, I think for three seasons too. Um, so you were great. not like a the, writer on it, but you were, you were a co-producer. One of the producers. Yeah. How did that happen? So and you so, went in like a regular audition, you got yes. cast, but then you became part of the yes, producing because team. they, after, you know, the second year, they, I wanted to be more involved. And then also they're like looking for ways to only pay you a little bit more but give you more credit, you know? So it was one of those combo things of, you know, I can have some influence over what happens, but also at that point, like I knew the characters so well and they, they were, I really created this person, even though Brent created the, the, the role, it was like, I made it a whole human. And, well, um, talk, I, well, I, I'd love for you to go into that, kind of 
how you did that. Cause I think listeners of this show, that's good for them to hear, particularly actors that are listening to hear that, okay, you go in, you get cast, but instead of just saying, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm an actor for hire. You took ownership. You kind of reminds me of you leaning back on the stuff you did in high school where you're in a cage mm-hmm. and you're creating a character, <laughs> you create a character here and now you help your cause by becoming a, a co-producer, I, I think that's cool for people to hear. So I'd like to hear just a little, like, did, you know, I'm sure you guys collaborated, you liked each other. Mm-hmm. Did you open yes. the door for that? Did you initiate that or did they? I think, I think I initiated that and, and my, and my manager probably. Um, and, you know, when you're dealing with these big entities, like a network, like NBC is a, is a behemoth. Right. And uh, but the 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 I don't know what their name would be, the sponsor, the producer, you know, the insurance company who was footing most of the bill because it was essentially an advertisement for them. Um, they they had a great respect for me and I had a great respect for them. And they understood that the reason this was working primarily was because of me. And that's not to say that I'm amazing. It's just that it was the right thing. You know, I was the right person to do that. And, um, and then we had all these amazing guest stars that would come on that, you know, like Fred Willard and, uh, just like tons of people. It was really, really fun. And so I think that they, you know, again, some of that is in, you know, just kind of in, in name and giving me the respect of saying that I am a producer on this. So it, it's not just, I'm not just saying words here. I get to have some input. Yeah. Um, but it's also, you know, it was a very collaborative kind of show and each season was a little different because we had a different showrunner each, each season, but generally speaking, it allowed me to have a, a voice about what was happening and how we, how we executed it. And it's incredible because that show, I think it was something like 25 million or 30 million people watched it. Some big number. 35 million is the number I have here. 35 million. million. And NBC was like, "Hmm, but we don't know what to do with it. Like how, you know, at that, like they, they could have made it a a TV show. (laughs) But yeah. at that time, it was like they couldn't, they just didn't get it. That would know? just make too much sense. That would be exactly. far, too, far too logical for Hollywood. Far too logical. Yes. <laughs> so a couple of things. We'll, we'll miss so many things because we, you know, we're not going to be here for four hours talking, but <laughs> I do want to cover a couple of things. Um, I, I, I want to talk a little bit about this. Uh, you were voted the the reader favorite as a celebrity mom blogger for people.com. Um, wow. You've done all these, you've kind of, um, I feel like you've done a bunch of different things and and a lot of it comes back to writing as a mm-hmm. as a creator. So I want to get into that and I and before I let you go if you're okay with it I also want to talk about that you serve on the board for the collaborative uh for the of the collaborative for the alliance for eating disorders and I I want it because I feel like there's I'm imagining there's a whole reason for that and I think that that's another thing you know we talked about People want to gloss over the glamour of it and everything. Yeah. It's like, what's the underbelly and wh- you know, where, w- what's the story with that? If you're cool with talking about it. 
Sure, definitely. Um, I am a very big proponent of talking about this because there's a huge stigma around eating disorders, which is part of the thing that keeps people, predominantly women, sick. And there's a lot of shame surrounding it. And I, I was anorexic from maybe the age of 18. I mean, yeah, I was always weird with food growing up, probably being a gymnast and a various things didn't really help and being extremely, you know, um, competitive and motivated. Uh, so I, I went into the hospital because I almost had a heart attack while we were shooting the film clueless. Wow. So that was very under the radar, obviously, like no one knew I, no one knew that that happened when it happened, except for my friend, Jennifer, who I've spoken about already, who I was living with. She, you know, she knew that I was, um, she was incredibly helpful to me. Uh, you know, her, her doctor, she was like, don't you need a doctor out here now that you're in LA? And so she was secretly like, my friend has eating problems. you know. And so I went to see her doctor who became my, my doctor. I, I, I so adore her. I wish that I lived in the same city and she could still be my doctor, but she's not, you know, and she tried to, she kind of head on talk to me about it. And I was like, I don't know what you mean. No, I don't have any of these problems. You know, I felt like I was way too fat to be anorexic. Like that word infuriated me because I felt like I'm not, I, I, I couldn't possibly be that. Meanwhile, I weighed like 95 pounds and, you know, was five six. I was going to say, do you so, look back now at yourself in that movie and think, oh, how could I have thought that I was fat? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Very okay. much so. And, uh, but so, you know, it's, it's weird. People always want to say, oh, did Hollywood, you know, give you these problems and endorse your issues? And uh, no, I had these, these, I had this issue long before I got there, but what it does do is just kind of turn a blind eye right? Like they would say, oh, you're so thin, but we can put anything on you. Like the clothes look great on you. And I went, yep, there, that's true. So, you know, long story, a little shorter. Ultimately, I kind of uh, am grateful to the business because the only reason I got into recovery is because I thought I was going to lose my job. Like I thought I was going to get fired. And I went, I have my career is actually starting. I gotta, I, I can't, I can't screw this up. So while that's not something that can sustain health and recovery, that impetus is what helped me kind of stay on the road a little bit. And then I reached these moments where you have to, again, say, do I want to be, you know, what do I want out of my life? And I, I went to a screening of the film of Clueless before it came out, a test screening with Alicia and Paul and Donald and Justin. And we all sat in the back row and it was the first time we had seen it. And I had all of these feelings and I had a friend of mine who was visiting um, from New York and he was very concerned about me. And we all sat in the back row and watched it. And I went, oh my God, first of all, this movie is going to be huge. <laughs> and um, I, and then I went, Oh, they cut out half of my scenes. Oh, I'm the skinniest. And that's pretty much all I get. Right. I get to be the skinniest one in that movie. Like that's, that's what you get for 
being the anorexic one. And I had this like revelatory moment where, and when we left the theater, we were walking up the stairs and somebody said to me, Jesus, Eddie, because he used to call me Eddie. He's like, Eddie, you're like a bone. You're so skinny. And it was the first time that somebody said that and it didn't feel good. It felt like, oof, that's not a compliment, you know? And whereas in the past, that's how I would have taken it. And that was like a real pivotal moment for me where I went, I, I want a full life again. Cause then I looked at my life, what it looked like. And I had this success, but I wasn't writing anymore. I wasn't performing anymore. I wasn't, I wasn't cultivating my artistry because it becomes such a prison. It becomes such an all encompassing thing that there's no room for anything else. And I started to see how sad that was, how, where's my voice, where's my, so it's this long recovery process, but that piece of going, I have something to say and something that, 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 that matters. And uh, I'm an artist and I have, you know, that, that, that communicating of the human condition and all of it, I can't do that with a shell of a, of a being. So I kind of, uh, you know, that's the, that's, that's the, that, but it is the, the reason I've been so vocal about it is um, not a lot of people have like a full recovery. There's a very slippery slope where, you know, and I'm, I'm sure you can throw a rock out your window and you will hit someone like this um, where they haven't really recovered. They might look like their body's fine, but they're mentally suffering still, or they're, they're, they're still starving themselves. They're doing weird things where like their lives are not flourishing. And um, so I just feel like it's kind of one of my duties to be uh, a proponent of talking about it. And that it's a mental, like you need, you, you need psychological assistance. Like I, I needed a therapist and a psychiatrist and various other things along with a nutritionist. Um, so, so yeah, that's how I wound up there. <laughs> well, thank you for, for saying it because for having the courage, because someone's listening and I, you know, I don't know who it is, but someone's going to hear this, whether it's now or, you know, five or 10 years from now, someone's going to hear that and it's going to help them. So thank you for, uh, yeah. for sharing it. And, um, I, I want to talk to you, uh, before you leave, I want to talk about Wake Me When You Leave, which is mm. your book. Um, I think so it's it's gonna be released June 8th, 2021. Mm. Um, I'm I think that people will be hearing this right as that date is upon us. Um Perfect. so I'd love to just kind of, you know, we've we've gotten to know you a little bit in this little time. I just want to talk to you about that. Like where did that come from? Uh, you know, what is it? And, and I, I hope that people will go check it out, go read it. So it is, it's a memoir about losing my dad to cancer and how it changed my life and my career and how he came to me in dreams and otherworldly experiences that helped me to heal and change my life. So basically it's about, you know, people might say, I mean, I've done a ton of active work since Sabrina, but Sabrina was sort of the last big thing. People would be like, where has she been? Like, what is she doing? Where, you know, how people like you disappear for five minutes and they're like, oh, what happened to her? You know, well, in this case, <laughs> uh, 
the uh, Sabrina was canceled. My relationship ended with the person I thought I was going to marry and my dad got cancer. And all three of those things happened over the course of a very short period of time. So I essentially went from understanding and, uh, you know, what, what my whole life was about. Everything seemed great to ha- like being stripped away of everything that gave me a sense of purpose, identity, success, love, support. And I kind of went on this spiritual journey that changed my life. And, uh, so I, I think like, as I'm saying this, I'm going, this has been my, I really do believe that we all have a soul's purpose and mine is certainly to communicate these, these kinds of emotional things to, to in, engender hope in, in, in people, you know, that these challenges, these, these struggles in, in many cases, tragedies, they, they can enhance our lives. You know, it's not something we as a culture are not very comfortable with discomfort. You know, we don't, we don't, we like to have everything, you know, cushy and we like to just have everything be okay. And I, I just think that we, that there has to be a, a shift because we're leaving out this whole other part of existence that is it's important, you know, these, these struggles bring us closer to humanity. They, they help us to understand who we are. They help us to connect to one another and, you know, bad things happen and you can still recover from them. So I I love, I love it. I mean, it's, it's, um, I, I feel the same just with this podcast and then, yes. and then all of the 10,000 no's stuff. It's like, uh, just letting people know, sure. Yeah. It's rough sometimes, but it's going to be okay if you keep going. Um, yes. I, I mean, t- tell me a little bit. So, so you, you, what was the writing process like? Because you've written, it sounds like with the, the blogging and with the, you, you know, you really are, I don't think I realized to the degree that you are that, you're really a writer. I mean, it's almost an equal force within you as acting totally or, or would you say it's even more? I would say it's even, I would say it's even more. Uh, I would say, you know, that flow that you feel when, you know, when we're acting and you're, you're like, Oh, I got this. Like, I know who this person is and it's, it's a flow, right. And you're, you're, you're working with the other actor and you're going like, this is the jam, right? That's what I, I feel like when I'm writing, I get the same thing, but I get, I, it's, I'm generating it myself. So it's, it's, it's more satisfying in the sense of, I don't need another person. (laughs) That sounds so uh, bizarre, but uh, um, I think it's, it's, I, I think I'm a better writer than an actor, I will say, because yeah. I think I can, um, uh, I mean, I think I'm a pretty good actor, but I, I, I think that that is really where I can, where the real gems are in my, my artistic gifts, you know, is, is there. And also the, so this, this book started as a, um, I did a one woman show that Chris also came to, um, at the Geffen. And I had started to write it as a book years ago. 
And, you know, people said, well, why are you writing it as a book? Like you're a performer. You should and I was like, I want to write a book. Like I've always wanted to write a book. I've been writing since I was a kid. And, you know, and then I went, okay, well, maybe I'll perform it. So I shaped it into the show and I was incredibly proud of it. It's like one of the things I'm most proud of probably in my career. And the response was so powerful and so overwhelming that people felt really moved and they laughed and like laughed till they cried. And I'm like, this is the kind of work I want to do. This is, this is what I want to do. And it's what I'm meant to be doing. So that's, was this long process of then getting the book. And then I almost had a deal of years ago and now it's also in development as a film and that I'm attached to direct that I'm super excited about. And, um, so it's kind of like these projects, I also want to say these things that, you know, these, these, the real like heart projects and any kind of creative endeavor that has real meaning to you, they have their own timeline and they have their own lives, you know, like we can't control it. You, the, the commitment just has to be to the work and the project and, and the, the pieces will fall into place when they are meant to. Because this book has like, there were moments where I, you know, I wanted to run it over with my car. I was like, I cannot do this anymore. Like, what, what, what is this for? You know, is this ever going to come to fruition? And in the end, everything comes at exactly the right moment, you know, oh. and this is the right time for this book. I also was more capable of, of, of writing it now than I ever have been before, you know? So I, I really feel like I, I needed to, I've needed to hear that over the years. So if there's anybody who needs to hear that right now, if they're like hanging on by the, the edge of their fingernails to something, cause they're really feeling like they're going to lose it. You've got to just keep going because it could just be the next step. It could be the next day. It could be the next minute. And it really, you just have to stay committed to your, to your soul's work. That's so beautiful because I, I was actually going to say, like, j bring that up so people could understand and appreciate the timeline. When did you do that one woman show at the Geffen? Yeah, at the Geffen, 2008. Oh, my God. Okay, so <laughs> I just want people to okay. hear that. I want especially young actors and filmmakers and writers to hear that. Mm -hmm. 2008, you did the one woman show at the, Geth at the Geffen. That now, which means that you wrote it before, which means that it was a lot mm -hmm. that went into it before that, before 2008. Right. And the book doesn't come out till June 8th, 2021. I read the okay. screenplay. What was that? Three or four years ago? Right. Yes. I'm going to be yes. too so old to play the part I was going to play. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was playing some rocker. Right, I'm going to be like, right. I'm going to be in a rocker by the time You're we do be. it. You know? <laughs> well, exactly. I think like, oh my gosh, right. That was all. I, I feel like it was four it years was a ago. while. It was and a long time again, ago. For the listeners, four years ago, we quote unquote had the money we thought. We had, we thought we had it financed and then we independent film, we did not have it financed. And then, so it's gone through all, but again, I will say over the course of that time, the script I have, I have revised and tweaked and enhanced. It's, if we had made that film, then it would probably be pretty good. But now it'll the script better. is so much better. It'll, yeah. it'll be better, you know? Yeah. 
Let me ask you three questions before I let you go. I ask everybody. Oh shit! Yes. I knew you were going to do this, and then I forgot to. Oh good! To, like, I'm so glad. No, no, I was like, I oh, I'm going to write it down. When, when people, somebody <laughs> recently was like, "Now I know you asked these three questions." I was like, "Oh come oh. on! Don't don't like give me a prepped answer." Uh, so first one, first one is uh, the word "no" means what to you? Uh, <laughs> the word "no" means um, the word "no" means. Uh, oh, and also it means, but you, or maybe, and soon and yeah. Yeah. yeah it's not, it's not really a no. Uh, okay. No, it's not really uh, no. What about a, any kind of saying, any phrase that you lean on when everything falls apart? Oh, I'm, I'm familiar with this particular area. Uh, this is what I, I actually have this as the, uh, a quote be in, at the opening of the book before the book starts. It's a Rumi uh, quote where he says, the wound is the place where the light enters you. Oh, that's good. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's good. The wound (laughs) is the place where the light enters you. I like that. Mm -hmm. Oh, all right. I almost forget my last question. Okay. Uh, (laughs) If you, if you could give your younger self advice, uh, what age would you intervene and what would the advice be? I always, in, in, in getting these kinds of, thinking about that kind of question, I always think, well, you know, if I hadn't done what I'd done, I wouldn't be where I am now. But I really think that the one thing I would, the one thing I would, would tell myself, it would be in my early twenties when all of like my career was really starting, I would say really, truly believe in your talents, like believe, like have confidence. It's one of these things that you can't give to yourself, but you know, that, that inner knowing that we have where we say we feel drawn to do something. Most of us actors feel that way and the artists. So like trust that that's right. That's not some falsehood that, you know, uh, God gave you and said, I'm going to make you think that you like this, <laughs> but, but really you're terrible at it, you know? Yeah. Like, so like, it, it's a confidence thing. Like I wish I could give myself the confidence that I feel as an adult right now in this body and soul. I wish I could give that confidence to like my 20 year old self to, you know, to, to just, to be able to, to shine, to be unafraid to really shine. That's a great, great, great answer. You know, it's, it's because, yeah, we could use that. It's just like that, that faith in ourselves, belief yeah. in ourselves. Yes. I, I really yes. love that. Yeah. Um, well, Elisa Donovan, uh, you are awesome. It's Matthew, so nice to have it. I so got to tell you, this <laughs> podcast is a great excuse to have cool conversations with people that I haven't seen in a while. So oh, um, this is really this so much. And I love how we know each other. The dear Kim Gillingham. Well, Chris, obviously. The dear and Chris then Kim, Christina, Kim but- Gillingham. Yes. We, I've talked about her a lot.
Just a shout out to Kim Gillingham. Yeah. My work with her and with the whole collective has, has changed my work tremendously, but also is a, is a huge part of this book of how I actually got this made. And it's, it's, it's a huge part of the kind of the undercurrent of the whole project. So I have great, great gratitude to, to Kim. Uh, just telling everybody again, uh, wake me when you leave, be released June 8th, 2021. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. So if you are listening and you dig Elisa, please go get the book. Um, it, it, it would be great to have as many of you read it as possible. So yeah. thanks. This is Thank awesome. You. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. What we do here is go back, 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 back. All right. Top three takeaways. Here we go. Number one, running from the problem won't fix it. I was so devastated. Like I was weeping. I was dramatically walking around my neighborhood. Like I am lost and broken. I can't do this. I'm so sad. I call my mom and she's like, oh, why don't you just come home? You know, just come home. And in that moment, I went, fucking come home. What are you talking about? Like, that's not going to fix this. This is not to say that you can't pivot. We all pivot, and so did Elisa. But on a basic level, sometimes the people who care the most about us, concerned parents, etc., have an instinct to protect us. That's beautiful, and I get it. I'm the same way with my kids. But sometimes we just need to learn by experiencing the hard knocks of life. That's the only way. If you walk away from something you know you want so bad you can taste it, it's going to eat away at you for the rest of your life. Number two, this is in two parts, and it's about the people you surround yourself with. A, don't surround yourself with yes people. I had this moment where I was like, I don't like sitting there because blah, 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 and my boyfriend at the time looked at me. He was like, are you fucking kidding me right now? Like, what are you? And I, and I was like, oh, I had this whole like, ooh, like every, it went all the way through my body. And I was like, oh, that sounded crazy. What I just said sounded crazy. And he was like, it, it, yes, it did. And B, when it comes to your work, I promise you, this is the truth. You need to find your people. You need to find the people who light you up, who get you, who share the same values and tastes. You don't need to agree on everything, but you need to have similar tastes. This alone will not just quicken the pace of the great work you do, but give you joy while doing it. And he was so engaged and so, um, you know, he just cared about what, what you were doing in a way that I was like, I don't care if I ever get this job. Like this was a thoroughly enjoyable experience, you know? Number three, struggle brings us closer to humanity. Kind of the whole point of this podcast, failure is opportunity, all of that. But I love the way Elisa articulates it. We as a culture are not very comfortable with discomfort. You know, we don't, we don't, we like to have everything you know, cushy and we like to just have everything be okay. And I, I just think that we, that there has to be a, a shift because we're leaving out this whole other part of existence that is, it's important. You know, these, these struggles bring us closer to humanity. They, they help us to understand who we are. They help us to connect to one another and, you know, bad things happen and you can still recover from them. 
put one foot in front of the other. You can still recover. Wherever you may be when you're hearing this, it's not too late. Put your blinders on, get up, dust yourself off, and get back in the game. Elisa Donovan, thank you once again. All right, that is it. Thank you so much for being here, 10,000 Knows. If you dug this podcast, please tell your friends about it. Put it on social media. Text it to people. Whatever you have to do to get the word out. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, please consider going there, giving us a five-star review, a nice rating and review. All of that stuff just raises the visibility of the show and make sure that more people hear these conversations, which I believe are very helpful for particularly artists, but really anyone just trying to find their way in life. And again, if you want to check out the 10,000 Nose Insiders and make this whole thing 3D and apply to your own life, uh, check it out in the show notes. You can also get the link, as we said, to pre-ordering Elisa's book in the show notes. And uh, that is it. I hope to see you. Hope to see you on Monday for a Monday morsel. And uh, have a great weekend. Thanks so much for being here. 10,000 Nose.